0: Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic. Joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson on Hollywood. And Ann, a lot of times on this podcast, we talk about film festivals that we're anticipating, film festivals that we're attending. But a lot of times over the course of those conversations, you know, we lose track of the fact that these movies continue after the festivals end. And this is an interesting week to talk about that to some extent because. There's actually a lot of stuff from last year's Cannes Film Festival worth discussing, starting with its uh, ill-fated opening night film, Grace of Monaco, which was a Weinstein Company title when it came to Cannes, and we found out this past week is going to be a lifetime movie. So is this just punishment for this Nicole Kidman uh, Grace Kelly biopic? I mean, I, I was not as harsh on it as some people, but I, I don't remember you being... Neither was I, anxious. actually.
1: Um, I mean, I think there are two films that are coming up this week that are sort of perfect examples. Uh, the other one would be Lost River, the Ryan Gosling film, of films that might, in the, uh, you know, with 2020 hindsight, have been a lot better off uh, not opening It can. I mean, the trouble with Cannes is that you have this enormous theater full of international national critics you know who are capable of slapping the seats with their displeasure thing and that gets reported and in this internet you, you know age that we're in right now it's not just a slow uh print um you know, uh, review thoughtful and, 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 you know, circumspect that, that, that shows up, you know, weeks or months later, or even a few days later, it, it is instant. There's Twitter. I came out of lost river and I thought, you know, this is a really good debut. You know, I thought, I, you know, I thought he really, uh, you know comported himself well, it was very personal, it was very idiosyncratic and visual and 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 everything and 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 then the Twitter feed went wild and the opening night opening night is another matter because on some level everybody expects it to be bad you right no, there is a, it's there sort was. of like not in competition you know and it, it's it's supposed to be glitzy and and glamorous and everything, but in this case, Harvey Weinstein didn't want it, and he was right. He was right that it wasn't ready. And the French sometimes insist. It turns out, Ryan Gosling told me in an interview that he went and did French press only for Lost River. And if he looked back on it, you know, he should have talked to the Americans. He should have done American press and sort of explained himself. It took him until the release of the movie to explain what his inspiration, why he wrote, you know, we no one read the French pieces that were written about him.
0: I'm getting nostalgic for our first episode now because I remember we were talking about can film festival movies in the sort of rear view and Lost River was one that we debated quite extensively because I really didn't respond to it, but uh, I would agree that you know a movie like that if it had you know gone to an environment that would have been receptive to its intentional weirdness you know in the way that it sort of South you by know,
1: Southwest or Sundance well,
0: exactly but I mean uh, but beyond that you know it, there's a different sort of uh, scrutiny involved in the can branding, you know, and with the opening night film, it's almost like people are coming with their knives out. So with Grace of Monaco, I think you know it was just sort of they they basically put that movie in the crosshairs, and people were already ready to tear it apart, even if it was not bad. But uh, with, this, with something like Lost River, people were curious, and it it's just not. I think what what, what I admire about Lost River in in retrospect is is. It, it does feel like an, an attempt by somebody who really cares about cinema to make something with some or, original visuals to to do something that that's challenging Well, on he a hired level. he
1: hired the dp from Gaspar Noé and and he you know he had his own very personal reaction to to the to the locations that he was filming on his own in, in Detroit, he had a single mom who he considered, you know, he he felt this very. very um, I think uh, that the, the frustration and helplessness that a young boy feels when you have a beautiful mother who's being, you know, sort of, pr- who's who's being, you know, circled by by predators. You know, that's how he puts it. And and yeah, there's a lot of material there that's quite rich it, it, for a first time filmmaker. I thought he did quite well is it a completely successful you know thing i think when you have a an actor who is who is uh young and has been you know hailed you know for movies like like drive you know for him to 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 have the uh chutzpah you know to stick his neck out you know it it it, people just use him as a target
0: well i think though though i mean in Conceptually, that makes sense, but it's not entirely the whole story. I mean, Lost River is a movie that I think even if I saw it South by Southwest, I, I I trust my own inclinations as somebody who likes outre stuff, who likes things that sort of mess with certain kind of expectations and produce kind of you know edgier visuals. I mean, I'm you know a big Harmony Korean fan, and this movie is very much indebted to images from Gummo. Even as as much as it you know may feel at times like a, you know Gosling took notes on a Nicholas Winding reference set, but it it doesn't feel fresh he, enough. He me says he was going thing.
1: after things like the Secret of Nim, <laughs> you know. Well, that's I what didn't it was, really see He was that. going after but, some kind of fairy tale. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I guess part of the problem is that there are so many when you go to film festivals and you see so many movies. You're much more receptive to to a, a very complex scale of quality. And so something either works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. And there are good things about that for people who care deeply about cinema. And there are bad things about that for people who, you know, make some passionate first feature and want to put it out to the world. And then they don't reach the standards of these very sensitive people. So, you know, that's just sort of the nature of the industry. And Ryan Gosling's going to be fine, and if he has, wants to cobble together the resources to make another movie, he will, and Lost River's going to get out there. I think the Grace of Monaco— I Monica... agree with that, and
1: I'd be curious to see what he comes up with. You know? yeah, I don't not... think he's—he's you know, and... he's not, he's not a poser. I, I, I just—he I, I, was sincere. I think, I think that's the thing that I find sort of endearing about it. You know, uh, I suppose it's, it is um,
0: easier to, to pity Lost River than Grace of Monaco. But again, that the, Grace of Monaco is not as easily that got lost in the weeds. Yeah, but but it, but you know the the stigma of being a lifetime movie is a bit of a stretch because if it is a that's lifetime shocking. movie, that's eh. shocking.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: So, so what it must happened? have been
1: the best deal they could get? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, look, Weinstein bought the rights. You know, they paid, paid a lot of money for them. Um, and what's interesting to me is that more and more, you know, it happened with tracks. You know, it's happened with some other films. You know, unlike Women in Gold. Women in Gold did not have great reviews. Let us remember this. It, it had, me, you know, medium you know, range reviews. That that movie's not an Oscar contender by any means. And neither would Grace of Monaco have been. And Harvey saw that. He knew that, you know. And, I, and he may have thought he had a chance of whittling it into shape. But this this, this movie could not, he wasn't willing to throw the ad dollars at it the way he was with *Woman in Gold. He put lots of money on *Woman in Gold, opened it wide, got Helen Mirren, timed it so that it was right when the play was opening on Broadway, the audience, the new Peter Morgan, Stephen Daltrey play, got everything. It was Charlie Rose. There was all this press. She was on Jimmy Fallon, you know, with her subway photo and her her uh helium balloon you know thing all of that and they opened that sucker now they could have spent that kind of money on grace of monaco the risk was that they would fail
0: well i would say this it's maybe just a touch possible that you're giving harvey too much credit here because there's a few other factors in play one of which i would i would posit to you that helen Mirren, despite her age is in some ways a more viable star than Nicole She's a bigger Kim.
1: movie star than Nicole Kim. Yeah. I agree with you, actually. Which
0: is awesome. She actually is.
1: I was looking at that. She has a lot of credits now, you know, including Red, uh, that yeah. series, um, and there are a, a few other breakouts that she's done on the commercial side. Even though uh, Nicole has been, you know, there, you know, get winning an Oscar for The Hours or whatever. Um, I think Helen Mirren has shown way more uh, uh, discretion in terms... I mean, I give... I give Nicole a lot of credit for uh, taking chances and doing lots of interesting roles. But Helen has been more, has picked better in the end.
0: Ultimately, and and if there is some comparison to be found there, it would be that, you know, one is much older than the other and has had more time to sort of figure out her options.
1: Nicole Kidman, given the chance, you know, with birth, you know, with Jonathan, glazer or i mean not that not that that was a hit but i mean she can hit it out of the park when she's got you know
0: or 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 uh... or john cameron mitchell's rabbit hole which he was oscar nominated for exactly yeah no i mean it's also it raises some other interesting questions about sort of female stardom at different ages you know the third can movie from last year that's opening this week in the united states is clouds of Sils maria which everybody is saying is finally Kristen Stewart doing something that we can get excited about, you know, which is obviously selling short what she's achieved, but it also raises an interesting conversation about you know, movie stardom in this country now. You know, She was sort of derided and became not quite a national joke, but certainly simplified in terms of her talents because of the, the Twilight movies. But there was a precedent that was set for Kristen Stewart's talent that came before those movies, and they, her role in them was sort of a natural result of, of sort of the, the kind of persona that came across in, in I think much more serious performances, you know it's just hard to wrestle yourself free of certain. I
1: went back and because I interviewed her. I sat down with her and I oh I realized something which was sort of interesting which is that i've actually seen all of her movies and i've actually you know from yellow handkerchief you know to the runaways uh to i remember discovering her early on panic room with jodie foster the david fincher movie when she was very young i remember finding her really riveted in john favreau's zathura a movie that I loved, that, that nobody liked, but it led to his career and her career too. And she is good in just about everything. Now, did I? Did, you know, there are a couple of. Um, I think she's been strong in just about everything and, and helped to carry very much so that Twilight franchise. Um, and I, I I agree with you. I think she's been um, unfairly uh, tarred in that in that situation. Um, and you have you know these these things where the twihards um some of them are our team you know bella and some of them are team edward and and you know they're they're like they, they 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 i see them on the blog i mean they 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 go in and attack Kristen, or they go in and attack pattinson you know? right predict like, that whole thing that happened where she broke up with where she got together with the the director uh of of snow white and the huntsman yeah. you know these things hurt her you know in the tabloid press but i think she's reclaiming herself i think she 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 won a caesar the first american
0: actress right totally win
1: the supporting actress and i would add for for this
0: for clouds of Sils maria which is very much a movie about confronting one's public image you know it's it it has she's playing this assistant to a very sort of neurotic uh kind of insular woman, Juliet Binoche, who in some ways is riffing on her own persona as this goddess of French cinema, and uh, isn't interested really end sort of, of the of,
1: stage. It's more it's also Margot Channing. It's also all about the
0: Sure, there's an element of that. I mean it, it, yeah. but it but it is very much riffing on contemporary celebrity culture because you have this Chloe Grace Moritz character who we see for most of the movie in sort of digital ephemera, you know, YouTube videos and so forth, being this starlet, and then... A lot of
1: iPad stuff, uh, yeah. a lot of checking but, the internet, yeah. But
0: the best the best moment in that movie, I thought, arrives when we finally see Chloe Grace Moritz's character outside of all that stuff, and she's very well-mannered and cultured, well-spoken, you know, and it's all an act. You know, it's all an act, and I think that's a very canny sort of statement by Olivier Assayas. I He's, think it's a
1: great movie.
0: After... Clouds of Sils Maria, I'd say I was going to go make an American film, or a film with American actors, including Robert Pattinson, of all people. And uh, that, Uh that seems to have fallen apart. I don't know exactly sort of what the contractual aspects of it were or anything along those lines. I mean, maybe it'll happen eventually, but... In some, in some ways, you can look at this movie as a statement on the challenges of crossing over, you know, to make a movie that could be popular when you have interests that aren't necessarily falling into those categories. You know, and even for the can audiences, Clouds of Sils Maria wasn't a slam dunk. It was programmed as the last competition film to screen, which always has a stigma attached to it, just like the opening night film does. And uh, reactions were sort of muted, as I recall. Sure. Um, it 's built up some momentum, and I hope it does well but it's it 's tough with movies like this you know it's it 's very much driven by talk it 's not a comedy it 's not straight drama um, it 's very introspective in certain ways, and like you said it it's it has a theatrical element it 's tied to to that world in a way that not everyone is necessarily going to connect with so while it 's certainly not winding up on lifetime it 's very a relatable yeah but it, but it 's a hard sell in in other ways i mean to, to, to describe to somebody who only casually goes to movies every once in a while what Clouds of Sils Maria is, I think, is not the easiest proposition, which is, to its credit, but also, from a commercial standpoint, maybe harder than than other things. You know? I bet
1: it does well. I actually think it's a smart movie that people will—because it's also about aging. It's about throwing out um, the older— actress and, and her anxiety about, about dealing, you know, she's switching roles. She played the younger actress who manipulates the older actress and now they're reading the lines and there's all these ways in which the two characters have different emotions that are being raised by, right. by reading these, these other characters and I loved that stuff. Oh, I loved, I the the final act great.
0: of the movie is a masterstroke because at a certain point it becomes almost existential in the way that it's sort of exploring their anxieties. You know, it just sort of naturally shifts out of this rehearsal session into something else, with this backdrop of the mountainside. the The second time I saw it was at the Locarno Film Festival, where they programmed it in their big outdoor Piazza Grande, where you wow, could actually see. Wow, it must see, have been
1: gorgeous. Sure,
0: you could see the Swiss Alps in the background and on the screen at the same time, so it was like you were in that world. So, um, you know, well, it's, well, it's that a, it's whole
1: a, image the snake and the clouds and and there was something very misty and 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 mysterious about it that i loved i think he i think he's i think it's a brilliant film i think it could be a a candidate for one of you know being on my 10 best list this year i mean we'll see how it holds up over time but um i'm i'm just uh i was i would be happy to sit through that movie again and explore it further
0: god i can't even think about 10 best lists yet i have I keep a running list of, of movies that might qualify over the course of the year, and we're only a quarter of the way through it, and, and I've got so many, so it's going to be an interesting process to whittle it down. And Cannes itself hasn't even started yet. Now, there's another movie opening this week, which wasn't at that festival last year, but we should also discuss it because I think that it's, it's another one that it involves just a couple of actors sort of doing what they do best. It doesn't sound like the easiest sell, but it, but it works quite well, and that's Ex Machina. This really slick, icy but not uh, too cerebral science fiction movie. The directorial debut of Alex Garland, uh, with Oscar Isaac and Domhnall Gleeson, in this laboratory and sort of a modern day Frankenstein tale with its artificially in, in, in artificial intelligence of a woman, and, and, and Gleason's Gleeson's character becomes attracted to her, and it's just it's a really interesting experience for a lot of different ways and kind of caught me by surprise, honestly. I wasn't, it just sounded like something that I'd heard of before, but I think it's really well done. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Well, AI is definitely the, the new topic uh, du jour, not that sure. it hasn't been dealt with before, but I happened to see the, the, um, uh, the Avengers Age of Ultron <laughs> last night, and lo and behold, AI is is definitely uh, the subject of, of of that movie, and I right. couldn't even help but think about about the 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 Sony hack, you know. Oh, I love this sure. movie when when Tony Stark is freaking out because the computers are are running rogue and, and he's not in control of Jarvis anymore and Ultron is taking over and everything. I couldn't help but think about the poor people at Sony with all of their data oh, yeah. flying out the, the door. You and know? There's no question um, that
0: like, the zeitgeist right now has something to do with the way the machines are controlling our lives. I mean, you look at Citizen Four or even movies like I talked about a few weeks ago Creative Control, which was another AI indie-themed movie that was at South by Southwest this year, and it's just everybody's sort of exploring these themes because they're kind of scary in an outsized, uh, fictionalized way, but at the same time they're rooted in, in very real things that are happening all around us. So we're
1: afraid of it. We're afraid of it. There's no, I mean, there's a moment in 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 the Marvel movie where where uh, Tony Stark just sort of beckons for his car, you know, as if it were a pet to sort of come up by itself, you know, and he gets into the car. Well, we're going to have Google cars and Google, you know, the Google glasses and all that stuff. Anyway, So um, Ex Machina, I liked the movie a lot, and I uh, was intrigued by the trailer, and I could see, it, first of all, Oscar Isaac, and... Uh, is is the Frankenstein character and he is a fabulous character he is really like a like, you yeah. know he's like a a sort of Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg type, you know, incredibly, you know, <laughs> he's like brilliant and Mark Zuckerberg and with
0: more muscle mass and a drinking problem.
1: <laughs> totally, like, and he he has created and and he you know that he must be he, he's obviously insane and he's ob- But you don't know how right. you don't know how much there's something. And he's in his mountain. He's out. in his mountain airy in his oh, Swiss yeah. Alps. Absolutely, there there you know? are certain
0: connections there. I would say you know just the way in which identity is always a question here, you know, who's, who's sort of conning who and so forth. They're actually quite Yes, similar. it's very
1: similar, actually. Yeah. The dynamics are very similar. and Who's in love with who and who's sexually attracted uh, to who? Obviously, the creator is having... Well, we find out that there are sexual aspects to his attraction to these to the uh, to the to the AI and 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 she's very good. Um, uh, Alicia Vikander uh, is 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 Scandinavian and she's um uh she was in the Royal Affair opposite Matt Smith Mickelson and she's trained as a ballet dancer and her movements are very precise and I'm sure that had a lot to do with why she was able to get this role and 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 be so convincing I and mean, she's really good in this.
0: What's compelling about it really is. is- visually it works as well as it does conceptually. You know, most of the movie we see this robot with just a human face and sort of the outline of a human body on some level, but it's there's enough there technologically to convince you of that world, even though when you think about it in retrospect, you know, the the set for the film is rather simple. You know, long hallways, sort of drab interiors, not a lot of stuff on the walls and so forth. But I think, I mean, I saw a movie that's at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier today called Jackrabbit, which is also sort of a, a near-future dystopian drama of sorts. And you could tell, I mean, it's, it's very minimalist. You don't see a lot of detail outside of the frame to elaborate on that world. But I think to some degree that's starting to make more sense to us as, as where we're heading. It's not about sort of the Blade Runner neo-noir future with really complicated cityscapes and so forth. There's something about the simplicity in ex machina, of the technology that's very convincing in terms of what what technology is going to look like in the very near future. And so that's what I think
1: is about
0: it. Um, so speaking of the future, we should address uh, an, an, another big news story that, that recently came up, which is um, basically the, the the question surrounding a couple of agencies in Hollywood. And uh, it's, it's more your turf than mine, though I've been following it from afar with a lot of interest, and, and that's the, uh, this kind of bizarre mass exodus from CAA by a bunch of people who are now at UTA and, and the uh, ensuing litigation that seems to be taking place. And maybe you can break this down a little bit. Why, why does this stuff matter? if you just care about the, the people who these agents represent?
1: Well, part of what's going on is that as the entertainment industry changes and as we're all adapting to the digital universe and the different uh, kinds of of salaries that are being paid to, to actors and, and where the, the money is being made, which is mostly television, big news break, obviously not news to anyone, that um, it always was true, actually. it was always true that the movie business was sort of a lost leader and and uh you know the sexier play the the thing that people got excited about and wanted the credibility from and wanted the uh you know award season. or whatever but but the television business was always where the meat and potatoes money was being made and it's even more true now but because of all the vicissitudes of the business the big agencies caa and wme which are the big 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 behemoths um and they have investors and they have people who control them now both of them they are no longer in control of their own destiny and they're therefore they're you know uh, Ari Emanuel, the famous uh, high-strung leader of of WME, is of course uh, thinking about an IPO and everything. Well, UTA is more of an older, smaller, uh, uh, you know, still focused on. Rep- representing people and uh, the, it's it's still what they call a percentory at variety you know yeah. and, and they um have lost some comedy agents to caa and it was a big and it was very bad and now those agents who are not in with the sort of in crowd at caa um, are coming back to UTA with their clients into big clients like Melissa McCarthy and um Will Ferrell, you know, Chris right. Pratt. Uh you know, these are big clients and but it but the problem is that it's the entire comedy department that has moved and some of them were um under contract and some were The ones who were under contract will be will have to go through arbitration. Uh, uh, any deals that were done when they were still at CAA will be, uh, you know, we'll have, they'll have to share those with with the original agency, pay those out with the original agency. But but the um, the raid was was a big one, and it could be as many as eighty clients or something like that. But then again, CAA is the top agency, still very powerful, still the most powerful in the movie business side sure. of things. And they um, have a and, lot of and, when
0: they sign filmmakers you know, at festivals and so forth, they can be a tremendous resource sure. because if you're, if you're a, a talented newcomer and you sign with somebody like CAA, the kinds of bigger filmmakers you can get to, you know, they rep James Cameron and people like that, you know, that, that sort of resource is something that seems like a lot of agencies can't quite do on the same scale. It's, it's, it seems
1: like... Well, CIA has a has an indie packaging department, and and they have they have uh, they do. What's happened in the industry over the years is that the agencies have become way more important in the independent side of the industry in terms of putting. These packages together, getting right. the financing together, uh, getting work for their clients. Yeah, and uh, CAA is very involved in that. So's UTA. so's WME. They all do that, and it's um, in the world of of foreign sales and and uh, the kinds of of uh, uh, deals that are going to be taking place at Cannes, where everybody's networking and putting their projects together and trying to find money. Uh, you know, the agencies are very involved in all of that. Um, it's, yeah, it's and a,
0: they're they're it's a very dynamic.
1: News. The world is changing, but the problem with the big agencies like CAA and what WME is that they are very involved in sports and fashion and touring and music and, and all these other things that are distracting them from what used to be their core business. And that's the argument that UTA was able to make when they made this raid.
0: Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things shake down once, you know, the results of however they do shake down, you know, surface with different kinds of projects and...
1: Yeah, but when you have a big agency like CAA that's so top-heavy and there's so many people who are partners and there's so many people who are, you know, so much pressure on them to make less money, you know, to spend less money than they were spending, you know, there's going to be a tier of agents that, don't see the prospects of moving up and making more money, you know, and they're the ones who are going to be, um, you know, pressured in some way by that to, to find a better place to to rise and shine.
0: So it'll be an interesting couple of weeks and months, to say the least. But uh, in the meantime, we've got plenty of other things to look ahead to, some New companies have have launched their slates, like Broad Green, and again, there's the can just around the corner, but even before that, we have the Tribeca Film Festival, which is next week, so we'll have some stuff to dig into about that when that happens, although you won't be here, you'll still have some opinions, I'm sure, and and I'm already... Leaving it
1: to you, New Yorkers, all yours.
0: (laughs) And believe me... You've left it to the right people because we're seeing stuff left and right. So by this time next week, I'll have a lot to discuss with you. So until then, take Looking it easy forward, out there. Eric. Bye. Bye.
1: Like it